The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nancy McHugh, professor of philosophy at Wittenberg University in Ohio, says the fear of bacteria, hormones, and antibiotics is rampant in our society. She's interested in the ways we go about making knowledge and ignorance about food and its relationship to health and argues that these practices have led to a new food movement, clean eating, which in turn has generated a new eating disorder, orthorexia, or righteous eating. Uh, she explores how what we see in the media and popular culture influences what we eat every day in her lecture titled Food Fear. Nancy McHugh is author of articles on feminist philosophy of science. Her book, The Limits of Knowledge, will be published later this year by SUNY Press. She also works with uh, inmates in a correctional facility in Ohio. We'll talk about that as well and uh, all of that to come. Nancy McHugh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you uh, coming in. Uh, so th- this is uh, fascinating. Tell me, first of all, the the ways we go about making knowledge mm-hmm. and uh, about uh, food and the environment. Mm-hmm. You're talking about science, the different ways we approach science? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's been happening in philosophy in the past 20 years or so, we've, philosophers have traditionally been really interested in um, how we go about making knowledge. In the past 20 years, we've thought about the ways in which we go about making knowledge that's in fact not really knowledge, but ignorance. So it looks like knowledge, has all the, the sort of guises of knowledge, but really, in many ways, it's, it's false knowledge or disinformation. So if you look at the information we generate about food, we have a huge proliferation of information about food to the point that it's actually really overwhelming for your average, your average consumer and your average person who wants to think about being health conscious. So, you know, 15 years ago, it was, you know, um, uh, high carb, low fat, you know, low protein, you know, Ten years ago, it came to be, you know, Atkins diet became very popular, low-carb, low-sugar, high-fat. You know, now we have, you know, we talk about the paleo diet. How do we go about eating like um, our prehistoric ancestors do, which we actually don't have a whole – we have some knowledge about how they ate, but the foods our prehistoric ancestors had in many ways are very different from the foods that, that we have. And so – but much of this, you know, some of it's generated through scientific research, but some of a lot of it's generated through – um, sort of popular um, approaches to um, to food eating. Um, and, and so when you have that much kind of information, it becomes overwhelming to, for people. And we sort of pick and choose what we want to believe. And in some ways, that's a good process. But in other ways, it can actually lead us really astray in terms of how to care well for our bodies and for our health. Is this a product of our internet information age? Or has this always been happening, but now we just, this, this ignorance? Mm-hmm. Um, and over, information overload is just in our faces? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. If you go back and look historically in, the, in terms of the history of science, you see and just the history of, of people's health, you know, for a, it's been, we've always been obsessed with our health. And, you know, of course, that makes sense because if we're unhealthy, that's not a great way to, to live. So if you can go back and you can look, you know, in the, you know, 17, 1800s and look at people who are going to, you know, water spas and having all kinds of different kinds of treatments done for their bodies to aid their health. You know, a lot of those people were affluent people, at least, you know, upper middle class or wealthy, and they had the ability to make those kinds of of choices. Um, So it's not as if the obsession with, with our health is something new. It's just that perhaps we have more access to gaining information about that. And um, we have 
become to feel like we're more authorities in our own healthcare, mm. which in many ways is actually really good because mm. it makes us more likely to engage healthcare practitioners and ask real questions, and it makes us more likely to go investigate you know, actual articles that might help us aid our health, but it also means we have a huge amount of information. And so, you know, we don't, I think it's hard for us to process it, but also a lot of it comes and appears to have a lot of veracity to it. And so we, you know, so for one, you know, in one case we might hear that, um, you know, there's some people who believe that eating gluten is bad for for everyone. And so a lot of people, 22% of the population right now, are on gluten-free diets. Now, certainly for a very critical portion of the population, being gluten-free is, is a matter of survival. You know, about 1% of the population has celiac disease. And it's a, a really debilitating disease um, that can kill people. Um, some people have might have some sort of gluten intolerance that's non-celiac. There's a lot of debate about that right now. Um, a research um, article that came out in 2013 um, that was a restudy of um, research that was done in 2010. So in 2010, there was researchers at um, University of Monash, um, Peter Gibson, did a study on people who believed that they had non-celiac gluten intolerance. And the study concluded with, um, the line is, uh, the research result was, these non-celiac gluten intolerance may exist. Now, the title of the article was, Celiac Gluten Intolerance Does Exist, or something along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. But Peter Gibson was never happy with his own study um, for a number of reasons. And so they went back and they did a, um, a restudy. And they brought in um, new patients who they thought had, who had irritable bowel syndrome and um, did a new study on gluten intolerance. And what they found was, in fact, that those people do not, in fact, that gluten was not the issue. It's what they call food maps, which is a type of fermentable, um, stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, polysaccharides. And it includes everything from you know, Brussels sprouts to wheat to um, to some sugars, to fructose, to lactose. And so what they believe is it's actually not the gluten in the wheat that's causing the problem, but it's a certain kind of sar- uh, carbohydrate. And so, um, but, you know, that, that 2010 article really generated a lot, of, a lot of press for the gluten-free, for gluten-free eating, and the gluten-free industry went through the roof. Mm. And so part of the information we get is not just that we're getting scientific information, um, we're getting popular press information, and then we're being marketed to really heavily. So, I mean, the rise in gluten, the gluten-free industry has just been huge, and that's great for people who have celiac disease and need access to those kinds of foods. But our, your average person, um, that's not necessarily a healthy diet for your average person. Mm. The, the talking about gluten uh, put me in mind of a uh, – it's kind of a funny – it's in popular culture, and I, popular media, and I can't remember exactly what program did it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, of course, we've, we're all hearing gluten. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they did a kind of a gotcha. It was a man-on-the-street interview. So they said, should you should we be eating gluten-free? Is gluten bad for you? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then the second question was, what is gluten? And not many of the people could, un- could answer the question. Right. <laughs> so right. this was played for humor. Right. But it kind of illustrates mm-hmm. something that you're talking about. We Maybe we think we understand, but we Maybe don't. We don't, right. And then what ends up happening is so some people who are eliminating gluten from their diet, they're eliminating a whole set of grains that deliver a lot of vitamins that are really valuable to us and fiber. And they're eating foods that have um, substitutes. So it's like anything. You take the fat out of food, you have to add something else in. So we went on fat-free diets to take the fat out of foods. We added sugar in to make it taste better. You know, when we take the the gluten out of of, – 
of um, grain products or out of baked goods, we have to add something back in. So they're adding in frequently things like potato starch and rice starch, which is a highly refined um, starch, which isn't necessarily good for us either. Our bodies process those like a process of simple sugars. And then we're losing all the fiber that we might have gotten if we're eating whole wheat or some other kind of whole grain like barley. And so so, you know, we might think that we're doing something good for our health, but in fact, we're really not. And we might, as you're pointing out, might not even know the reasons why we're doing it. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about clean eating. Mm-hmm. You say this, you know, the, the, the whole environment we're living in, we've been talking about, and has mm-hmm. produced a new movement, clean eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so clean eating, um, I think, has risen a lot out of some useful um, health awareness that we're probably eating diets that are overprocessed. Um, and so I think the idea that we might, that it's probably really good most days to eat oats instead of donuts is really good advice. Um, I mean, we know that if we eat donuts all the time, it's probably not very good for us. We know if we eat fast food all the time, it's, it's really bad for our health. And so in that sense, the idea of, of clean eating is, is not a bad idea, but it does take on an overly moralistic tone, right? So if you're not eating clean, you must be eating dirty. You know, so you're clean or you're cleaner or a dirty person. There's lots of, of moralistic overtones that go along with that. Um, but we also, I think, have a really hard time understanding what clean eating is because there's so many different perceptions of what it might mean. So for somebody, it might mean, you know, I'm trying to take most of the processed food out of my diet. That might not be bad. For some people, it might be I'm taking all the sugar out of my diet or I'm taking all of the animal products out of my diet. Or, you know, my favorite clean eating um, book is called Clean Eating with a, a Dirty Mind. And it's a paleo book. And, and let me see if I've got the picture here someplace. But it's actually a really great, it's a, a photo of a really beautiful cake. And, um, but it's a cake that's made with, you know, with um, ingredients theoretically that are you know, ancestors would have eaten back in the, you know, Paleolithic period, which in fact, they were not baking cakes then, right? So, so it's an interesting, it's a, you know, a paleo cookbook with a cake on the cover. Um, so there's a, a wide variety of what people view clean eating to be. Um, and so what I might view to be clean might be really different from, from what you view to be mean. But because it takes on that, that overtone, the other thing that goes along with it, and again, these are, good, these are positive things too. So how do we think about eating organic because it might be better for our environment? Or it's certainly, you know, growing organic, organic bananas is probably also better for the workers because they're not coming in contact with pesticides. And buying fair trade food or direct trade food might be really, really useful also. Um, you know, buying local is really good for the local economy. All these things are really positive things. But what happens is some people start layering those on. And so it's not just that, you know, that I have to eat, you know, local organic food, but I have to eat, um, you know, I have to have only, you know, um, a sugar-free diet. You know, I have to eat, eat primarily or only fruits and vegetables. So, for example, um, there is a, a blog and or a, um, a, a list, and they were talking about um, – clean eating. And this woman, she has as her clean eating, as her um, her photo, it's uh, a little tag that says, keep calm and stop eating. So this is posted on March 7th of 2015, so just a few weeks ago. And she says, hey guys, I was just wondering, is anyone obsessed by, let's say, ethical eating? I mean by that, not only considering animal rights, I'm vegan, but also stuff like fair trade, treating workers fairly all over the planet, regional food, lowering the food footprint, organic, workers' health, but also my own and the environment. Often all those things get completely messed up in my brain, and I feel like I can't eat anything anymore, thinking that starving myself might actually be the most ethical thing. I just really feel like I don't want any other being to have to suffer from my existence. It makes shopping complicated. 
I only buy in organic stores, mostly fair trade if I need to buy anything from far away. Otherwise, I stick to local food, which in the winter means boring. Um, and she gets a response to that. And the response talks about how, well, you know, my, my thing is a little bit different. You know, I kind of care more about whether the food is clean or not, blah, blah, blah. But then she goes on to say, so she, she says, um, I try to be conscious about my choices, but I haven't gone completely overboard yet. And the next sentence is, oh, also, I'm currently fasting because I got freaked out about foods this weekend and have no clue what else to eat anymore. Which wow. Is, which is a pretty extreme. That is. It's, it's a pretty extreme take on, on clean eating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that research on um, eating disorders has shown us is that people who engage in disordered eating, many times the behaviors they engage in are sort of this, these magnifications of cultural trends that we have already. So um, in 1993, um, the philosopher Susan Bordo wrote a book called Unbearable Weight, and she argued that um, women and girls that are suffering from anorexia and bulimia and compulsive eating, um, they're really taking on this, especially the bulimic and the anorexic, are taking on this um, personification, this over-magnification of cultural norms of slenderness and control, and that they're sort of using their body as a script to display those norms of slenderness and, and, and self-control, that my body is a contained body, and look how thin I can be to show you how contained and how controlled I am. And then the compulsive eater is sort of on the other end of the spectrum, like a kind of a rebellion against that. And, and Border talks about how, you know, uh, women and girls use this, this body as a way of, of showing cultural ideas, um, ideals. And so um, I think that, that, that orthorexia, you know, uh, fixation on righteous eating, is kind of a magnification of the clean food movement, you know, as opposed to using our bodies as a script to write, um, to show our sort of cultural behavior on. We're using our food that's in front of us on our plate. It's e- equally as visual, but the purity of my food shows you how ethical I am, you know, how righteous I am. Mm-hmm. So this is a manifestation in interaction in society with, mm-hmm. your, with your friends, with your set, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this, everything you, from the dinner table, mm-hmm. right? So, so how we, you know, you know, sort of one of the things I, I sort of talk about in my talk is, you know, the 19, 1980s and 1990s, we had, you know, um, multifamily dinners because people were divorced and living in different households, right? So families weren't eating together. But, you know, in 2015, we have families not eating together because you can have multiple diets and with one out- household. Right. right. And, and that really, I mean, food is a really important part of community. So when you have people who refuse to go to parties because they're afraid they can't control what they can eat when they're there, right? So they're f- afraid the food might not be clean or they feel like they have to bring their own chicken or their own vegetables because the vegetables might have, you know, refined oil in them if they eat them at the party. Um, th- I mean, not only is it unhealthy for them mentally and maybe, and maybe physically, but also it's, it's a real um, breakdown in community. When we can't share meals together as as a community, that really says a lot about about us in a lot of ways. We'll continue this discussion after a break. We're talking with Nancy McHugh, professor of philosophy at Wittenberg University in Ohio. Uh, her book, The Limits of Knowledge, is coming out later this year, by uh, published by SUNY Press. More following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Electrolysis of water, known as water splitting, is a chemical reaction in which water is separated into oxygen and hydrogen. Efficient and cost-effective water splitting remains the holy grail for widespread affordable energy production from sustainable energy inputs such as wind and solar. Known catalysts produce either oxygen or hydrogen, but not both. 
with support from a Governor's Energy Leadership Scholars Grant, USU chemist Yuji Sun and students are advancing knowledge of bifunctional catalysts that can simultaneously and cost-effectively produce both oxygen and hydrogen. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Gardeners Market Farm to Table Banquet, Saturday, September 10th at 6 p.m. at the Riverwoods Conference Center, featuring locally grown foods from Cache Valley's Gardeners Market vendors prepared by Chef Robert Sanderson. Ticket information at gardenersmarket.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, should migration be a basic human right? There are fundamental human rights. Those rights include the right to free expression, they include the right to freedom of religion, and I believe they should also include the right to move about the earth. The case for open borders, and the case against it, too. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nancy McHugh is my guest. She's professor of philosophy at Wittenberg University in Ohio. And uh, she explores how what we see in the media and popular culture influences what we eat every day. And she has a book coming out later this year published by SUNY Press. That's called The Limits of Knowledge. So, Professor McHugh, we were talking, uh, it's a very fascinating uh, subject of, of how we get knowledge, how we get, I guess, scientific knowledge, truth, you might say, but we also get bad knowledge, ignorance. Mm-hmm. And it's it's all out there in, in today's interconnected uh, world. And uh, this, you say, has, has led to a new food movement, clean eating, which in turn has generated a new eating disorder, orthorexia. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we talk a little bit more about this. Um, during the break, we were talking about, uh, you brought up the fact that it's kind of interesting, eating disorders generally more prevalent among women, except for this new one, mm-hmm. orthorexia. Yeah, so historically, um, anorexia, bulimia, and um, were, were primarily eating disorders that affected women. Occasionally, you'd see men who had eating disorders that were really brought on by sort of overworking out and then becoming obsessed with, with body image in that way and developing an eating disorder. Um, it's interesting, interestingly enough, they found in a study that was done several years ago that um, men who were put in the same kind of restrictive diets that women put themselves on um, developed the same kind of obsessive um, eating behaviors that women who diet are put on. So, for example, they took a, a group of college men and they restricted their, their – so a lot of women, when they diet, restrict their calories to 1,000 to 800 calories or less a day um, when they go on these – or some, you know, some fast. So they put the men on the equally restricted diets, and they started doing things like hoarding food, obsessively weighing themselves, obsessively counting calories, you know, um, and that the behavior started to mimic the behavior of, of, of women, which is really interesting, which tells you there's not less anything, you know, gendered or anything biological going on. It's just the ways in which we receive sort of kind of messages and develop habits about food. But with orthorexia, the research shows that there's about equal a number of men as women who develop um, orthorexia. And the other thing that's really interesting about it is the, it's primarily um, people who are ages 30 and older. Um, usually middle class and usually college educated. 
And so it's which is a very interesting kind of demographic. So it's so it's, you know, it's people like like us who it's not, you know, it's not 17 year old um, young women, although there certainly are 17 year old young women. One of the ways I became aware of this is a friend of mine's daughter. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'd heard I'd heard about orthorexia before, but I didn't know anybody who had it. And a friend of mine's daughter developed orthorexia and um she was eating gluten-free for a while, and then she gave up dairy, and then she heard, you know, sugar was bad for her, and too much fat was bad for her, and and by the time she gave up everything, you know, gave up stuff, she didn't have any idea what to eat anymore, and she got to the point where she was going in. Her doctor said she was on the verge of going into kidney failure, and this was a you know a healthy young athletic woman, um, and was on the verge of of really dying, and it's just really shocking when you when you hear those sorts of things. And um, it got me really sort of, it got me much more interested in, in the topic than I had been before. And I started thinking about what kind of choices do we make when we start really labeling foods as, um, you know, as clean or dirty. Mm. You know, we add, you know, we all frequently add a moral component onto our eating. You know, like when Susan Bordeaux does great when she talks about this, she goes, you know, if, if someone says, you know, I went away with my, my friends for the weekend and I, you know, and I really, and I cheated, nobody thinks that they had some sort of affair. What they think they happened is they cheated on their diet, right? Mm-hmm. So we cheat on our diets, right? You know, we, you know, I've been really bad. I've eaten too much. Well, it's really interesting that we frame it in that kind of language. Mm-hmm. And then with orthorexia, it takes it to this whole other level where we, we frame it in terms of, you know, I've been unethical in a certain kind of way. I've made a choice that's not just bad for me. It's bad for my planet. And and then at a certain point, it becomes life-threatening for some people. Exactly, exactly. That's, which is, which is I guess, that's the new development here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this might be a good – I've been thinking about – there's a – again, back to pop, popular culture. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about a scene from Notting Hill, which you may be familiar with. Uh, Hugh Grant, mm-hmm. at a certain point, goes uh, – there's a montage. He goes on a series of bad blind dates. And on one of these, the, the woman uh, announces that she is a fruitarian, mm-hmm. which is a made-up term. <laughs> and uh, she says, she, so what, what is that? Mm-hmm. Well, I only eat that uh, fruits and vegetables that have naturally died and fallen from the vine. <laughs> and so Hugh Grant points to the carrots on the table. She said, those carrots, she says, yes, murdered. <laughs> so so that's, it's played for laughs, mm-hmm. you right. know. Right. But it, it kind of, you know, it kind of indicates mm-hmm. this moral component that we put to it and that could be taken to extremes. Right. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the community relationship with food. Um, I mean, it's interesting to me, um, you know, and I, and, and I guess I should come clean. I try to eat pretty clean. <laughs> right. I mean, I do a lot of these things. So it's not like there's not some self-critique going on here. Um, but it's interesting to me that we live in a world where there's so many people who do not have food um, at all. Um, and who do not have access to healthy food. Um, you know, if you go into many um, urban centers, you, it is hard to find a full-service grocery store and, you know, in an urban neighborhood. You know, you might go to a more affluent part of the neighborhood and you might find Whole Foods or, you know, or something like that or Trader Joe's. But if you go to your average neighborhood, you, you might have a corner store and that might have a few bananas and an apple and some iceberg lettuce. But by and large, they're going to be packed with you know, with Cheetos and Fritos and boxes of sugary cereal mm-hmm. and, you know, alcohol and cigarettes and things like that. But they're not going to be packed with healthy food. So there's this sort of this funny thing, this funny disconnect where we've got all these people who don't have access to, to even, you know, what, what some people would consider to be not clean food. But, you know, they, so they don't have access to even mass-produced you know, tomatoes and spinach and, you know, other sorts of things like that or whole grains, right? Um, and yet we are so deeply concerned, 
you know, about the about the organic food that might be going into our bodies. And I, I do think I, it's not that I don't think that's valuable. And, you know, and I do try to buy organic food and those sorts of things. It's just sort of a funny disconnect between mm. thinking about the rest of the world that doesn't have food or doesn't have access to good food. And then we obsess so much that, you know, I've, you know, I've, you know, know of people who, you know, they might have bought by example, by accident, a bag of of inorganic of apples that aren't organic, right? And they're like, oh, I can't eat those. I've got to, you know, they throw out the organic apples. You know, maybe they compost them, but probably not because they probably want to compost the organic apples. <laughs> so they throw out the the, or, the apples that aren't organic and go and buy a new bag of organic apples. But there's people who just don't even have access to apples, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's just a very funny disconnect to me when we see that there's a level of also affluence that's required to think about how we go about eating clean. Yeah, I suppose you you'd have to. So I guess a disease, a disorder of luxury, right? Exactly of affluence, which is exactly why the the demographic here is you know thirty year old men and women, thirty to you know thirty to I think they say thirty to to fifty five year old men and women who are middle class and college educated, you mm-hmm. know, and and so we have the affluence to throw out the apples that aren't organic and buy the new ones, but that's a funny choice for us to make. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, uh, I was talking with a friend yesterday about some of these topics, uh, looking forward to talking to you today. And she was saying that she's uh, she's vegan, mm-hmm. has recently turned from vegetarian to vegan. Uh, she has an app on her phone. Mm-hmm. She can, you can, it'll bring up easily what the ingredients are. And so she can check to make sure mm-hmm. this is this is a vegan product. Um, but, but it brings up also um, a lot of other stuff that she's not concerned with. Mm-hmm. And I guess that gets to what what we're talking about here. It's mm-hmm. information overload. Mm-hmm. And then we got into talking about the, there's a the raging debate, which I had not been familiar with, which over whether vegans should eat honey. Because I guess bees are in the animal kingdom, right? And if you're, mm-hmm. if you're not supposed to eat animal byproducts. Um, so, so that's fine, right? That's the, you know, that's the, the people who are wanting to eat clean, eat righteously, if you were. Mm-hmm. But where's the line where, you know, where you get into, you know, that that touching and shocking blog post that you mm-hmm. wrote, this young young lady who's obviously gone too far? Yeah, I think the line is different for different people. Right? I think it requires a really high level of self-awareness for us to realize what our lines are. And that's, that's really hard. And I think sometimes when you're getting a lot of information, um, it becomes not just information – overwhelming in terms of the amount of information, but what that information um, says to you in terms of what your what your values are. And so I think on the one hand, you know, I think some people feel very good and feel significantly better when they when they eat vegan. And I think those people should should eat vegan. Um, some people don't don't feel good when they eat that way. Um, I think some people feel a very strong ethical mandate to eat vegan. And I think that's an important value for them. I and mean, we all have to live the lives that we think you know, just like we have to embrace, you know, different people's religious values and political values. And if you respect the whole person, that means respecting that people are going to have different, different differences from you. Mm-hmm. And that those differences are what make us a lively, interesting, valuable community. And I think that's the same in terms of if you want to think about eating as a lifestyle. And for many people, eating is a lifestyle. It's not just, you know, so many people, for example, who eat paleo, you know, engage and also are part of, of certain kinds of exercise communities that really sort of value a certain kind of exercise. And people who are vegan, many of them do it for larger reasons than just their own personal health, but because commitment to broader ethical values that relate to, you know, valuing non-human animals. And those things are all important. 
So I think we have to respect people who have to make different kinds of food choices from, from those that we might make. But I also think that we all need to learn to really listen to ourselves and listen to our, our bodies. And that's really hard for a lot of us. So um, I was uh, vegetarian for a really long time. I mean, I haven't, e- I haven't eaten um, red meat since I was 17 years old, and I haven't eaten you know, chicken for a really long time. And I also had given up um, seafood, and I was, I was vegan for a short amount of time. But when I give up seafood, um, I hadn't eaten seafood or fish for, for years, and I started stuttering, and I started having memory problems, and I just mm. felt really bad. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what it is because I felt like I had a pretty healthy diet and I was taking, you know, flaxseed oil and I was doing all these things that I thought were really, you know, were really good for me. And I went to a doctor and, um, you know, and I had not been a stutterer before and you're hearing me talk, I don't stutter now. And, and um, my doctor said, your body can't process um, short-chain fatty acids into long-chain fatty acids. You need to either take fish oil or, or start eating, you know, things like, um, salmon that are high in fatty acids. And I was like, well, I'm a vegetarian. I don't, I don't want to do that. And they said, well, you know, what's happening to you neurologically is really, is really dangerous. Your body, um, you know, it's a genetic condition, you know, and your body can't process these short chain to, to long chain fatty acids. And it's affecting the, you know, your nerve synapses in your brain. That's why you're stuttering, having memory problems. And so, um, I started eating salmon again, and within a couple of weeks, I actually got better, and I stopped stuttering. And what will happen now is if I go too long without eating fish, it starts, it starts back up again. And so that was a really a reality check for me because I would say that I thought everyone could be vegetarian, and there was no reason why they shouldn't be. And what it really made me do is really respect that when people say, you know, I need to eat, you know, I need to eat red meat. My body really needs that, and I don't feel, I don't feel good if I'm not eating it. I had to really... Um, respect that maybe they were really listening to their bodies and their bodies were telling them something different than my body was telling me when, when you know, I decided I didn't need to eat red meat. Mm. And it was humbling. And I, I think it's good yeah. for us to have that kind of humbling moment. Right. I wonder, make a move to, we've been outlining a problem, mm-hmm. information overload, what do you and, and uh, disconnect in, in making knowledge and ignorance. What's the solution? How do we how do we go about parsing out what's the good information, what's the bad, making those decisions based on what how we want to live? Mm-hmm. I don't think that we teach people how to be very good conscious consumers. You know, one of the things that I think I would say is a problem with our education system overall is we don't teach people how to be critical thinkers. And um, and I think that really, and I, and I don't, this isn't a conspiracy theory, but I think that our media really buys into the fact that um, they can really sort of bombard us with images. Um, and if they tell us the same thing over and over again, regardless of whether it's true or false, we're gonna we're gonna believe it, um, and or we're gonna absorb it in some ways. And it might even if we be, if we feel like we know something, we might get to hear a message over and over and over again that um, that causes an, enough doubt for us to actually really you know trust ourselves. And so I think that one of the really important things that we can do as educators, and this needs to start when children are young, and needs to continue on through college is to really teach people how to be really good critical thinkers and to really sort through, um, you know, not just media information, but, you know, I think that most of us should learn and should know how to read basic scientific papers. You know, we should notice things when the conclusion of an article says um, non-celiac gluten intolerance may exist, right? Um, And notice that when the title says gluten intolerance does exist. That there's a conflict between what the, what the researchers who say in their conclusion and results section, how that's different than what the, likely the journal editors decided would be a nice title to get people reading the article, right? And 
the media picks the title of the article, not the results section mm-hmm. and the inclusion section mm-hmm. of a journal article. But we, I think that most of us should be in a position when we finish high school, I believe, to be able to read a basic scientific article. Mm-hmm. What about the cultural aspects of this? There, you know, there are moral judgments mm-hmm. flying back and forth. You, you mentioned it, and it certainly resonates with me. I've heard about this. Uh, you know, you can't go to a party anymore because unless you bring your own food, you mm-hmm. know, how do we navigate that? Well, I think we all have to keep really open minds, right? And so I try to not um, judge people when they talk about what their food needs are, because certainly we all have certain kinds of food needs. Um, So I think part of it's keeping an open mind. Um, And, um, you know, it becomes hard for some people because you can be hosting a party, but you've got people with five or six different kinds of different food needs, and that becomes really, really challenging. And some of those are certainly... Um, choices that people are making because their ethics and similar choices people are making because their bodies physically need certain kinds of, of foods or physically need to not have certain kinds of foods. Um, but I think that we also have to realize that we're all part of a community. And part of that community is me being tolerant of people's needs, but also realizing that sometimes that not all of our needs can actually be met. And so, you know, so I recognize sometimes when I go to, so I'm, I'm also lactose intolerant. So when I go to a party, I recognize that you know, that, that, that need just might not be cared for. And that's okay. You know, I have to be okay with that and, and, and just figure out how I'm going to navigate it. And that, that's not necessarily my host's fault or responsibility. That's just the way it is. And so, you know, we figure out how we can be part of a community and live with other people and respect our own beliefs and values and respect others, but also be aware that not every single one of our needs might be met. And we have to recognize that some people's needs are really more critical than, than some others might be. What about, I assume this is a small subset of the population who have orthorexia or mm-hmm. in danger of mm-hmm. orthorexia, but what, uh, what might be the warning signs that uh, perhaps mm-hmm. I'm prone to this or I'm, you know, maybe, maybe I'm an orthorexic and mm-hmm. need, need treatment? Mm-hmm. I think some of the signs are, are, you know, looking for, and you hate to sort of overly examine people, right, because it's very uncomfortable for the examined and the examiner. But, um, you know, when people... Um, you know, I mean, dropping of weight obviously is one sign. But when you listen to, you have to really listen to how people speak. I mean, just like when people have anorexia and bulimia, when you start hearing them say things like, "Oh, I can't eat that," or "I'm not going to come," I'm not, you know, choosing to not come to social occasions because they they might not be food that they want to eat. I think we really have to pay attention to to what people are saying about food. And I think this is, you know, Susan Borda made this argument about um, anorexia and bulimia that she's the argument she made was that. Most women exist on a continuum where it might not be the case that they have anorexia or bulimia, but they have a certain kind of obsession with sort of slenderness that's very normative in our culture. It's becoming more and more normative in our culture to think about clean eating, certainly not as full-blown as it was for women to think about slenderness. But I think we have to look at the ways in which we um, help instill those things in our children and um, that we should talk about what it means to be healthy but maybe not do it in the kind of moralistic tones that we do, you know, you, you, and maybe you lead by example. So, you know, if, if, you know, you are eating oats more days than donuts, you know, you're, you're doing a, you know, a good job and, you know, your children will see that and you hope that you provide good food for them, but also letting them experience the joy of going out and having a donut. If, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, if a child eats a donut once a month, that's not going to be a bad thing for them and letting them to enjoy what that means and understand what, you know, what moderation means. Um, the philosopher Aristotle talked about what he called the mean between the extremes, um, the golden mean, and that the golden mean for me is different than it might be for you, um, that we have different places where. So healthy eating, 
as a mental and physical and ethical thing might be a different place for me than it is is for you and it might shift in terms of my own lifetime where where that what that means for me and so part of it is developing a self aware an awareness of self also about you know at what point is this healthy for me but also i mean your question was how do we recognize it in other people i think again this idea of if someone takes you know a half an hour in the store to choose between um, different kinds of organic kale, right? Or they're obsessing about every single label in their food, or they're saying like, you know, I can't eat this kind of food. I can't have chocolate in my house because all I'm going to do is is devour it. That's the kind of that's not quite orthorexic behavior, but that's a certain kind of disordered behavior that I think is really kind of common amongst many of us, and isn't really healthy. Right? We should be able to have a piece of chocolate and enjoy it and not, and not worry about it. And the fact that we might feel like we might compulsively eat it, um, is a, it's, it's un, it is unhealthy to have that kind of level of compulsion. You just joined us. We're uh, talking with Nancy McHugh. Uh, she's professor of philosophy at Wittenberg University in Ohio. I'd like to make a transition to uh, your book, mm-hmm. the other topic you're going to present. Um, and, uh, you have this in your book. Uh, you, you talk about a transformative experience in uh, in Vietnam, what we're heading toward is a gap, you say. There's a gap in what many scientists and lay people want from science. Um, so first of all, tell me about this trip to, uh, to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. This was 2004? Yeah, I went in 2004 with um, a group through CIEE, which is a, um, an a, um, international academic, a group that order, organizes international academic trips. And so we went to go study the transition from a communist economy to a market economy in Vietnam. And that was the transition was really happening as we were, you know, um, in the early 2000s. And, um, and Vietnam now, you know, 11 years later is a lot, is a lot different than it was when I visited in 2004. But I, but I went and we, um, we toured a peace village. So we went, to, um, we went to Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. And uh, we went to the Tudu Hospital to, to tour a peace village. And um, it was a beautiful hospital. You know, we, we walk in and, and really differently shaped than we think of, of U.S. hospitals. And so in the center of it was kind of like a, um, um, I guess, a market in a way. You know, it would be like going to a farmer's market or something like that. And there's all these people gathered around. And we went in. We went to meet, met, meet the director of the hospital. Um, who was a researcher and also got to meet some of the other doctors there, and they start talking to us about Agent Orange exposure to Vietnamese, and and I didn't really know much about Agent Orange in Vietnam. I knew um, some about it from um, the U.S. because my father was a researcher for the Defense Department, and he was a biologist and ran a um, ran a lab um, at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, and so he. Um, and they had studied the effects of, of Agent Orange, not him personally, but um, at that base, they studied the effects of Agent Orange on U.S. Um, U.S. GIs. And so, and you know, the, the information at the time was that we didn't expect Agent Orange to have the kind of mutagenic effects that they're describing on the Vietnamese. So the so the director of the hospital is saying, well, you know, look, we, you know, we're seeing, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, effects on children from Agent Orange. And, and um, some of these are hereditary, but some of these are hereditary as in, you know, uh, potentially passed on from, from um, people who are fighting during the war. But most of it, she said, was that there are these big Agent Orange deposits, these barrels that were left from the Vietnam War. So they called the American War. And in Vietnam, they call the Vietnamese War or the Vietnam War, the American War, which makes sense, of course. And there's these big barrels of, of Agent Orange that were, that were left and put in these reservoirs. 
they're, they're filled with water. And they're in, rust, they're in barrels, and barrels are made of metal, and they rusted and eroded. And so Agent Orange and the dioxin, which is a toxic component of Agent Orange, leaked out of these barrels into the water. Well, this water is used to do things like grow fish or, um, you know, f- um, frogs or, you know, all sorts of things. And so there's, so there's these Agent Orange hotspots in Vietnam that are not the result of the spraying that happened during the Vietnam War, but are the result of these barrels that were left and are leaking. And the and dioxin can be found in the, the dirt, in the food, you know, in um, the breast milk of women. So some women in Vietnam in particular areas have 47 times the amount of dioxin in their breast milk that's considered safe by the World Health Organization. And this is being directly offloaded from their bodies into their, into their infants. Um, they, you know, there's dioxin in seminal fluid. There's dioxin in, you know, in all these parts of the, of the body. And so there's these children that are being born with, I think, with birth defects that I think many of us um, have never seen in the United States. Uh, yeah, just and you describe this. It's 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 heartbreaking. But you're going to say that uh, then you know your central question becomes uh, whether our current scientific methods mm-hmm. can meet the needs of the communities mm-hmm. which are situated outside the dominant mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. So what so what happens is so in, in, so in Vietnam what happens is is we you know we have this one kind of sort of linear approach to studying dioxin and Agent Orange, which says in a laboratory. You know, um, dioxin can't cause the kind of effects that that is it's being claimed to cause in Vietnam, and then more current research sort of um, softens that statement a little bit, and it says, well, in animal studies, we see some of these effects, but um, since no studies have been done in human, we can't necessarily extrapolate cause and effect from dioxin to these human defects, even though we might see some of these in animal studies. And so, so it, there's this huge level of sort of, uns, of uncertainty, and unless we have certainty, we're not going to say that Agent Orange has caused these kind of effects. Well, you've got people living in Vietnam <laughs> whose bodies are destroyed in some ways, and, um, and you know, families who are trying to care for children, and sometimes multiple children that are severely ill, um, from the effects of, of dioxin. If they live in rural areas, they can't get to hospitals very easily. Children from rural areas that are born in city hospitals frequently have to be left there because their families can't care for them well at home. And so um, so what, what they need is something that maybe actually looks more specifically. What does it mean to live in a community that has Agent Orange that they're exposed to on a daily basis for multiple years? So, so U.S. soldiers had acute exposure to Agent Orange and probably high levels of acute exposure if they were spraying it and hand spraying it. But the Vietnamese have had long-term exposure to where it's in their food, it's in their water, it's absorbed into their bodies, it's in their body fat, it's in their breast milk. And plus many, you know, Vietnam is a developing country and most people are living at, at subsistence levels. And we know that when people live in poverty in general, and poverty is a huge stressor regardless of where you live, um, and that our bodies, our bodies take that toll, right? I mean, we know that people who live in poverty die younger than people who are living in, in one well, general, who are living in flu- affluence. And so, um, so they're living not just with, you know, uh, contaminant. They're living with the contaminant over multiple years and with bodies that are already compromised through the effects of poverty, War um, and other kinds of other you know heavy physical labor and other kinds of, of stressors, and so the questions we need to ask then about what it means to live with a toxin in an environment is not just what does it mean to have a toxin affect something in a laboratory, but what does it mean to be immersed within a particular environment 
with this particular toxin, with multiple levels of other kinds of toxins around oneself, you know, living in these kinds of basic conditions. And then I think we might be able to generate some kinds of answers to those problems that are less linear and simplistic, but maybe really actually help us help people to live better. And that that's our goal, mm. right? You, you have a phrase in your, your book, situated knowledge. Mm-hmm. Is that, that's, that's what you're yeah. talking about here. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, feminist philosophy of science in the past 20, 30 years has talked about the ways in which um, knowledge is generated in a sort of critical fashion, f- um, partly through the conditions of oppression. You know, and this actually goes all the way back to the philosopher um, Karl Marx, that, that the view of the oppressed might be different than the view of the, the um, not oppressed, in part because the oppressed have a different investment in maintaining the status quo, right? And so, so as we move through into more recent times, that feminist philosophers started looking at the ways in which knowledge is generated in a critical fashion and a collective fashion through communities that are differently situated than, than mainstream knowledge might be generated. And so you've got people like um, Sandra Harding, Patricia Hill Collins, Chela Sandoval, um, Donna Haraway, who are doing this really kind of critical work in thinking about the generation of knowledge. And then um, Lorraine, a philosopher named Lorraine Code talks about what she calls ecological thinking. How do we really connect physical place to how we generate knowledge? And then I kind of take that and pull it together with um, the philosopher John Dewey and sort of thinking about pragmatism and this linkage between knowing and doing. So when we, you know, in philosophy for a long time, and really in a lot of Western culture, we separate this sort of theoretical from the practical. But for the pragmatist, there's no separation. And and the theoretical and the practical are one, and and they they inform each other. Um, There really is no dualism there. They inform each other. And um, so what we do shapes our knowledge, and our knowledge shapes what we do. Mm. Um, And so the other way to look at it is what's the relationship between knowing and ethics and knowing and social outcomes. And so I sort of shape, pull those sort of two frames of thought together to think about what it means to generate critical knowledge about these kind of highly um, toxic environments. Um, The other community that I look at is um, one called Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco, and that's what I'm talking about tomorrow. Um, which has significantly higher rates of breast cancer than you see in other parts of the country. Uh, I've been talking with Nancy McHugh, professor of philosophy at Wittenberg University in Ohio. And uh, let's get this email in. It's coming at the end. This is from Steve in Arizona. He says, I have a 30-year-old son who's a vegan and a 26-year-old daughter who eats fish but not meat. My wife and I are omnivorous. omnivorous. So uh, when we eat at a restaurant together, each person orders what he or she wants according to personal regimen. But on those occasions when we eat, get together and eat meat at home, usually Thanksgiving or Christmas, my son, the vegan, sets the menu and acts as the chef in charge of preparing the meat. The rest of us are his sous chefs, and I'm always amazed at how very satisfying vegan Thanksgiving or Christmas meal could be. So there's That's a nice, yeah. nice example. Yeah. Uh, So, Nancy McHugh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement online at utahhumanities.org. Tetris, as you might know, the video game, was created in the USSR, the Soviet Union, but... How did it make it out of there? You had to sneaker net it, which is what I call it when you put something on an old-fashioned floppy disk and you walk it over to somebody else and say, here you go. I'm Kai Rizdal going viral old-school style. That is next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We go now to Roots of Brazil, which is aired every Thursday on Access Utah for the past few weeks. In this last installment of Roots of Brazil, Utah State University student Brianne Charlesworth explains a specific martial art form which originated in Brazil. Indigenous to Salvador, Brazil, is the fighting form known as capoeira. From the outside, it might appear as an acrobatic dance or some sort of karate incorporating music and roundhouse kicks. The presentation is more theater than fighting to the outside observer. It is deceptively clever and excels at trickery. No mats are used here. This dance takes place on the streets. If you visit Salvador, it won't take you long before you stumble upon a capoeira circle or a hoda. Citizens of all walks of life are welcome in these circles, wherever they form. Young women, older gentlemen, the inexperienced and experienced alike. The players sway back and forth, evading a variety of kicks with handstands and cartwheels. Little kids mimic the moves from the fighters from the sidelines. Musicians hand off instruments to another and jump into the center. The enthusiasm is unmatched. The audience is quickly enveloped in the intensity of the martial art and the power of the music. While in Salvador, the Utah State University crew had the privilege of speaking with a local capoeira maestre or master. Maestre Cabo Clino grew up and learned capoeira in Salvador and now teaches extensively in the United States. He spoke of the important role that capoeira has played in his life and in the lives of all Brazilians. For me, capoeira is deep meditation. It can bring you to a lot of things and bring people into your life. The same thing capoeira gave me, it gives to the kids in Brazil. Education, discipline, balance, respect. And I meet everybody, black, white, Indian, Jamaican. Because of capoeira, I am safe and I am happy. I teach because I want to share this. By American standards, capoeira is an unusual martial art because it requires its practitioners to learn instruments alongside the techniques. Drums, tambourines, and iron bells accompany the singing and chanting of the audience. The star of the show, however, is a simple musical bow made of wooden wire called a berimbau. The berimbau has a distinctive sound that dictates the rhythm and speed of the players in the center of the circle. Maestre Cabo Clino gave us a first-hand look at how it's played. This instrument here the kind of song very primitive here Maestro Cabo Clino had much to say about capoeira but he was adamant about cautioning us not to get caught up in what he calls tourist capoeira the wrong capoeira for me is when you follow the tourists but many are involved in this tourism So people start forgetting about their past. When you give up the past, it is difficult to bring it back because in reality, it's forgotten. I think tourists want to know the truth. The truth of capoeira is that it is a reminder of Brazil's difficult and complex past. It was developed by colonial slaves to look like a dance so that the slave masters would not know that they were learning self-defense. 
According to Cabo Clinio, preserving primitive or traditional capoeira is important because it is such a fundamental piece of Afro-Brazilian history. The true history is only found in primitive capoeira because it has the right philosophy. It accepts everyone, no discrimination. Contemporary capoeira confuses this idea. Everything is set up to sell. If people do not learn the traditional way of capoeira, the way it is supposed to be, then it stops being a martial art and it starts to become something less valuable. In the end, Maestro Cabo Clinio made it clear that to really understand the power of capoeira, you have to respect its history. You have to take the bad with the good. It is about making a deep connection with the past and bringing it forward. In essence, you have to make it your own. This is Brianne Charlesworth reporting from Salvador, Brazil, with Mikel Law, Elizabeth Thomas, and Jason Gilmore for Utah Public Radio. Roots of Brazil is made possible in part by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing services for international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities for students and faculty. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. Viva Utah, you see. Yeah, viva Utah, camara. Yeah, sabe joga Utah. Yeah, viva Utah, camara. Utah, Utah, you say. Yeah, viva Utah, camara. Utah. Some good timing. That was the martial art master ending the Roots of Brazil series with a song he wrote about Utah, dedicating it to the USU crew and to you, the UPR listener. The entire series can be found on upr.org, and from there, you'll be able to share it with others who might enjoy learning about the Roots of Brazil. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.